Hi, everyone. Welcome to the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I am Alicia Halliday, and with us today is a special guest who I will let introduce herself. Her name is Dr. Whitney Guthrie. She is from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, but she has a long history in the field of autism, and I'll let her describe it for herself. She's also the first author on a new paper that has tracked children from very, very early, um, as young as 18 months, provided intervention, but started at different age ages. So it, answer, it kind of addresses the question, is earlier intervention better? So I'm gonna turn it over. Dr. Guthrie, can you introduce yourself? Thanks, Alicia. Um, so like Alicia mentioned, I'm Whitney Guthrie. I'm here at CHOP. Um, I'm gonna be report talking about a study that took place at the University of Michigan and Florida State University. And I was actually lucky enough to do some of my training at both of those institutions, um, partially while this study was happening. So I was a research assistant at the University of Michigan with Kathy Lord as a graduate student um, with Amy Weatherby at Florida State University. And now I'm a faculty member here at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you. Let's go ahead and go into this, this particular research study. So both Dr. Lord and Dr. Weatherby are very, very interested in understanding early interventions and supports, and I know you are too. But the question of is earlier the better uh, or how early is effective has never really been definitively answered. So what was the goal of this study that you that you just published? Yep, so the goal of our project was really to study the timing of early parent or caregiver implemented treatment for autism to see if starting this particular intervention earlier led to greater gains during treatment. Like you mentioned, you know, we've long heard that earlier is better when it comes to autism, but it turns out that we've needed more robust data to back up this assertion. You know, most studies here have been correlational, but we really needed a randomized controlled trial to tell us experimentally is earlier better. So that was our goal to test specifically when we start intervention earlier, do kids benefit more from that? So you specifically looked at 18 versus 27 months. So you just said the words randomized clinical trial. Can you explain a little bit more about how you went about examining whether starting at 18 or starting at 27 uh, what the difference was there? Yeah, so to answer this question that we were really interested in, we used what's called a complete crossover randomized controlled trial or RCT. Using this particular type of design, we randomized toddlers with an autism diagnosis and their parents or caregivers to receive what we call individual ESI or early social interaction. This type of intervention is more intensive and more individualized. And we randomized families to receive this intervention either at 18 months, right when they got their first diagnosis, or nine months later at 27 months of age. So we could compare what would happen when kids got this intervention earlier, 18 months versus later at 27 months. And then how did you go about finding these toddlers with ASD? So you're talking as early yeah. as 18 months before a lot of parents really start you know, really getting concerned. Um, so how did, yeah. how did you find them? So in this study, we actually had two different sites and they recruited families in two different ways. So at Florida State University with the PI Amy Weatherby, we recruited families from primary care directly. So pediatricians were screening for autism and other communication delays with the infant toddler checklist. And then on the other hand, at the University of Michigan with PI Kathy Lord, Families were recruited either because a professional, so maybe their pediatrician or their daycare provider or a caregiver themselves had some concern about autism or about development in general. So families came to us in, in one of two ways. 
So tell me about, or tell us about ESI as the intervention. You don't have to describe the protocol in detail, but <laughs> yeah. what does it focus on? Um, it's a great question. So ESI is what's considered a naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention. There are several of these. Your listeners have probably heard of those. Um, all of these NDBIs, they're called, incorporate both developmental and behavioral principles. And specifically, ESI is a parent or caregiver implemented intervention, and it has six core features, which I'll um, overview very briefly. So the first feature is using a developmental framework that prioritizes social communication, emotion regulation, and what we call transactional supports. That's just the teaching strategies or learning supports that parents are learning. We use evidence-based strategies, so things that we know from the literature work for young kids on the autism spectrum. Also really important to the ESI model that somewhat distinguishes it from some of the other NDBIs is the collaborative coaching model that we use to sort of support parents and caregivers learning these new strategies and then generalizing across contexts. It's family-centered and child-centered, so we're prioritizing the family's needs, their concerns, their priorities. It's really not a one-size-fits-all treatment. We focus on learning within natural environments. So the intervention doesn't take place in a separate setting from where this child exists day to day. The intervention takes place within a family's everyday activities. So not just play, but mealtime, bath time, family chores in order to sort of embed this intervention into what the family's already doing. And then the last core feature of ESI is that ESI is really designed to reach the intensity of early intervention that we really think young kids on the spectrum need without requiring kids to be in therapy for let's say 20 hours a week. So instead, parents or caregivers are working with an interventionist or a coach for a few hours a week, and then they're working to embed the strategies they've learned to practice those strategies within the things they would already naturally be doing with their child. So that's kind of ESI in a nutshell. Those are the really kind of core ingredients of ESI. People sometimes think about interventions, especially interventions in kids, and automatically go to the place of discrete trial interventions or, or some of the old school ABA. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about how this intervention incorporates some of the principles of ABA, but at the same time is not what people traditionally think of as ABA? What a great summary. I think that's exactly what ESI aims to do. You know, like all NDBIs, ESI involves behavioral principles, but they're implemented in a really developmentally appropriate and child-centered way. So for example, ESI is using strategies like natural reinforcers, things like a favorite snack or a toy, but also really naturally occurring reinforcers like help or um, shared enjoyment. So if a child naturally communicates for help, the natural reinforcer is gonna be that the parent or caregiver is gonna offer that help that's been requested. We're using things like scaffolding and waiting, modeling language and play. Um, these are all kind of behavioral principles, but we're not doing things like giving specific directions or asking questions. Those things don't do as much for skill building at this young age. Um, we are using things like prompting, but really with an eye towards immediate prompt fading so that prompts aren't the core of what's happening. They're kind of the initial impetus. And then we're moving past specific prompts. Um, I also want to mention that ESI does not include some of those things that, you know, have sometimes been associated with ABA, particularly in the past. So we didn't use any punishments, for example. We use natural reinforcers, the kinds of things that would naturally happen in your day-to-day -day life. You ask for help, you get help. Um, we didn't use punishments. We also didn't use goals for things like reducing repetitive behaviors. 
Um, those were not goals in ESI. Um, no one had an individualized goal to reduce flopping, for example. And then even the trials that we did use, they, did, they don't look like discrete trials that you might sort of think of when you think of traditional ABA. These trials were really child-initiated teaching trials. So the interventionists taught the caregivers and parents to join their child's focus of attention and to build from there, rather than forcing the child to focus on whatever the adult wanted to focus on. So these trials and behavioral principles were developmentally appropriate and really child-centered rather than adult-focused, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And it sounds like kind of an intervention that would be beneficial for, for anyone. And I, and I know that there was no control group here, meaning that nobody yeah. didn't get the intervention, right? So yep. can you, with the randomized clinical trial um, or randomized control trial, I'm sorry, can you explain how that worked? If there was no, no intervention, how did it work in terms of the control? Yeah, it's a great question. I think this is one thing that sort of complete crossover design where we use two conditions is different than a lot of RCTs. Um, and actually the research team was really intentional with our use of what we consider an active control condition rather than that traditional no treatment control condition. And the reason that we did this is that we really didn't want to recruit families into a trial where half of them would have to wait nine months to receive any treatment. We didn't want to um, ask families to do that. So we really designed an active control condition, which would hopefully engage families for those nine months. If they were randomized to get individual ESI later, we wanted to engage them with something while they waited. Um, so the other condition was what we called group ESI. So group ESI was designed to be less intensive than, the, than individual ESI, which I described before. It was a parent caregiver education group. Um, so it involved families, four to five families meeting together, once a week. They met once a month together with the group of parents and caregivers to learn um, general ESI strategies, but they weren't individualized and they weren't kind of tailored to the child. They were really more general. And then the other three weeks in a month, they got together, um, all of those families with their kiddos to practice those strategies under sort of the, the supervision or the guidance of, a, of an interventionist or a coach. But again, it wasn't individualized and it wasn't intensive. So either they got the individualized first and then the group second or the group first and the individualized second. Yep, perfectly said. Okay. Yeah, another way to think about it is when they started the study at 18 months, they were randomized to receive one of the two treatments first, like you said, individual or group. They got that treatment for nine months, whatever that was, and then they crossed over into the other condition. Whatever they didn't get first, they got second for an additional nine months. So everybody got 18 months of intervention, either it was individual then group or group then individual. Good. So nobody got deprived the opportunity <laughs> to get some sort of intervention, which which I know ethically you would never do. Um, yeah. So tell me what you found. So were the benefits the results of just kids getting older and how do you know? So what, what were the, the main findings? Great question. This was something we really had to consider. We really wanted to make sure that we ruled out the possibility that the changes we saw were due just simply to kids getting older or general age effects, like everybody shows more progress when they're younger. Um, we wanted to rule those things out. So we used that active control condition to compare, um, did we see these effects where earlier is better? And then the important part of the RCT was, did we see them only in the individual group? If we saw it, I'm sorry, only in individual ESI. If we had seen these effects in both individual and group, so everybody showed more change earlier, 
we wouldn't know was this juice just due to time or due to the intervention. So we defined what we called a treatment timing effect as something that we only saw in the individual condition and not in group. And we found that actually for a number of outcomes. So we were really excited to see that our results were largely consistent with the, the notion that earlier is better. So those kids that got individual ESI earlier, so they got it at 18 months, they showed greater gains while they received individual ESI than children who got individual ESI at 27 months. Um, and we saw these effects in a few different key areas, which was really exciting actually. So earlier seemed to be better in terms of receptive language or understanding of other people's language. We found this across two measures of receptive language. So an observational tool and a parent interview, which was really robust. We also found earlier was better in terms of expressive language. So use of language and sounds and communication yourself. We also really excitingly found it in social communication. So the use of communication skills specifically within a social interaction, um, which is one of the things that this intervention is targeting. And this might be one of my um, most favorite results actually. We found this effect on daily living skills. So those self-help skills that are really important for independence. And I think we found this because of ESI's focus on everyday context. So families were doing family chores together. I've seen just the sweetest videos of two-year-olds helping pull laundry out of the dryer, sorting it. Um, and so that focus on what is the family already doing? Let's embed inter intervention in those activities. I think you know, we hypothesized that might, that might have led to that um, daily living skills finding. And then I'd say overall, we found these effects mostly in areas that were targeted by this intervention. So we didn't find them on things like gross motor skills, fine motor skills, cognitive skills, repetitive behaviors, the kinds of things that just weren't specifically targeted by this intervention. So what does this say since you, you know, found that in fact, earlier yeah. intervention does confer benefits in things like daily living skills, which I think someone could argue is actually what you want to get to in life. Mm -hmm. What does this say about this wait and see approach that some pediatricians take when they, when they see a child for their well child visit at 18 months? Yeah, it's a great question. I think a really important implication of this, our particular findings. I think our findings add to the research that already exists that suggests when there's some indication of possible autism, so a positive screen in your pediatrician's office, you as a parent or a caregiver um, have some question about whether autism is at play for your child or a professional expresses some concern. You know, if any of those things have happened, I think our results suggest that a swift referral is really critical. We just don't recommend based on our findings waiting even until the child's next well child visit, which could yeah. be six months later. We found that even a brief window, nine months of someone's life is really not that long, um, but a brief window of 18 versus 27 months had actually fairly big impacts on development. So some of our findings were as much as a standard deviation, which is pretty big. Um, kids just seemed to gain more when we started at 18 months in these, some of these critical areas. So waiting just a few months really, unfortunately can have an unintended effect. It can take away a child's ability to capitalize or leverage on that early brain plasticity that we know that's happening and take advantage of this developmental period that seems to be really important for outcomes. So that's the takeaway, <laughs> moms and dads. If you see something, say something. Absolutely. Um, so my last question is, you know, you've collected a lot of data from these kids and they're actually, you know, getting older now and... Mm -hmm you can look at whether or not certain individuals may 
have different outcomes. So what are you going to do, not just with the data that you have, but then also the families that are involved? It's a great question. We have, we have a lot of data that we're really excited about. Um, so we've done some work looking at individual trajectories. So studies like this one that we're talking about today and some of the other studies in this area have largely looked at group effects. On average, how much are kids changing and when? Um, but we also know that individuals are quite different from each other. So we're starting to look at individual change over time. Some kids seem to benefit more than other kids from an intervention like this. Um, so we're looking at what are those individual developmental trajectories? What predicts a child that really is going to take off early? Um, what distinguishes a kiddo for, like that from someone who's so, showing more sort of slow, steady progress in, in intervention? And then, like you mentioned, you know, these kids are getting older. They're not kids anymore. This cohort, they're actually moving into adolescence. Um, so we currently got a grant, um, Dr. Weatherby at FSU, Dr. Lord, who's now at UCLA, to follow up this cohort of families um, into school age and into adolescence. Um, and I just have to say, you know, I feel like I've learned so much from these families um, in terms of what they're thinking about for their school age kids and their adolescents, how well everyone's doing. Um, we met with a family just recently who said they still have their ESI binder from when their child was a toddler. Mm -hmm. And they're still thinking about, you know, how can I, you know, promote my child's independence? How can I join into their and create a shared activity with my teenager now? Um, so it's been really cool to follow these families. We're really lucky that they've stuck with us this long. Yeah, that's great. And it's also kind of speaks to how well you guys did in terms of ensuring that they had a positive experience through the, through the first studies. So, um, yeah, it Thank doesn't you. just happen naturally. They, they, sure. they want to continue because they had a good experience the first time around. So, yeah. Is there anything else you want to add something that I didn't ask you today? Um, you know, I think sometimes when you, when you end a study, at least I immediately think about like, what would I do differently or what would I do next time? And so I think it's important to acknowledge here that, you know, there's a lot of things I feel like we did well in this study, but there's a few things that if we could do it differently, we probably would. So, you know, most of this cohort, many of these families were white. Most of these families, the parents or caregivers had at least some college education. And so if we had it to do over again, I think that we would um, put in even more efforts to recruit a more diverse group of families that better represent all families with kids on the spectrum. Um, it's just so important that everybody's perspectives are represented and that, you know, when we're looking at things like how are families and kids responding to treatment, how does timing matter, um, that we represent all perspectives and that our in interventions are culturally responsive. So I think, you know, that's a good lesson learned for myself and, and for all researchers. And yes, for all researchers, I don't feel, please don't <laughs> feel like you need to single yourself out as the only one. This is something that as a community of autism researchers and scientists, we need to do a better job at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and we look forward to reading the next phase of this research. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this work.